Good evening, everyone. When someone says, I am originally from Scotland, it's true, and then I open my mouth and people are like, really, you are? Because you don't sound it, but uh, I don't think I do. Some people don't think I do. I have more of a Canadian-Scottish blend, but uh, uh, it's, uh, thank you for that introduction. Thank you especially for praying. I appreciate you uh, taking the time to do that, Jamie. And uh, it's a joy to be with you all. Uh, if you haven't had the opportunity to, to be here over the course of the Wednesdays where this uh, summer series has been running, I encourage you to go back and listen to the lectures. I got to all but one, and uh, I was greatly edified, encouraged, helped uh, in my own understanding of the truth and uh, the scriptures. So uh, truly a blessing uh, to uh, take that in, and also a great privilege to be here uh, this evening as well. Uh, tonight being the conclusion of the summer fellowship means I'm the harbinger of fall. Whether you like it or not, it means the summer is almost over. And uh, I am actually looking forward to the fall for one particular reason, is because I have a weekend trip planned in my with my wife away with, from our four children, which is going to feel like a month. But uh, in October, we're planning a weekend trip for her birthday down to Indianapolis. One of our favorite musical artists, the Grey Havens, is touring the United States, and that's about as close as they're coming to Canada. One of the reasons that we are making the trip, one of the reasons that we listen to them so often, is because of their album entitled, The Blue Flower. Shortly after their album dropped, they released a couple of podcasts discussing the writing and producing, and it was absolutely riveting and this may be where I have lost the men in the room, maybe a good number of women as well, because if I'm starting off introducing albums and podcasts about a flower, maybe you're thinking about tuning out. But before you do, you're going to want to hear about this one. The album is not about an actual blue flower. In 17th century German romanticism, the blue flower was a symbol for something else. And don't worry, I'm not going to talk a lot about German Romanticism because you would definitely tune out if that was the case, but stay with me. The blue flower was, and is still to some, a symbol for joy. But a joy that we only initially know about as unfulfilled longing. C.S. Lewis writes about this in his book, Surprised by Joy, relaying a childhood memory as follows. He writes... Every day, there were what we called the Green Hills, that is, the low line of the Castle Ray Hills, which we saw from the nursery windows. They were not very far off, but they were, to children, quite unattainable. They taught me longing, made me for good or ill, and before I was six years old, a votary or a devotee of the blue flower. So from childhood, he writes, he was awakened by beauty to a longing for joy. And he became devoted, he writes, to the search for this ever-elusive experience of satisfaction. Now, the Grey Havens capture it well in the following song lyric on their album, Have you ever missed somewhere that you've never been before? Like there's a memory there that you can't remember anymore. There are all sorts of experiences that can awaken such a deep longing in us, a longing for what even the best of life only hints and whispers at. The search for lasting joy is like catching something at the corner of your eye only to quickly turn around and see that it, there's nothing there. And when there's nothing there, it's almost as though our souls ache for something that we seem to be missing. Memories 
can awaken this in us. Our favorite places can awaken this in us. Love can awaken this in us. So can beauty and music and friendship or distance from people most important to us can awaken this longing for joy. Could be a delicious meal or laughter or a pet or a round of golf or a swing, swim in the ocean, a walk in the snow, art, music, a book that you can't read fast enough but that you don't want to end, a clear night sky. There are all, these are all examples of signposts pointing out to us our longing for joy and there are as many varieties of those as there are people. But none of them are the destination, which we know because as much as we may delight in these temporary joys, we know they never last which only heightens the ache, the quest, for what Lewis and others have called the blue flower. But what if it could be found? What if the longing for unfulfilled joy wasn't a tease, but a wetting of our appetites? What if the soul ache that I suspect you can relate to could actually be satisfied with joy unspeakable and full of glory? Now, judging by the fact that you're here, I suspect you believe this to be true, and perhaps you can resonate with these words by Samuel Pierce, who once wrote in a letter to a friend these words. He says, what can equal the enjoyments of a Christian? Nothing, surely, on this transitory globe. Nothing this world calls good or great can be put in competition with it, with the joyous feeling of one who has the unspeakable happiness of experiencing themselves interested in a dear redeemer. Yes, the happiness he feels is beyond all conception, beyond all the stretch of human thought. And as we come to the final lecture in this fabulous summer fellowship endeavor, you may be thinking that I got my wires crossed. The theme is truth, it's not joy. Don't worry, I'm not going off the reservation. I know what the theme is. We will spend most of our time on the title of tonight's topic, Walking in Truth. But in the verse assigned to me, there's a connection between joy and truth for the Apostle John. An experience of joy that is magnified by the truth, that is found in the truth, such that I believe he would resonate with the words of a Samuel Pierce as we've just read. And I don't want to overlook that. I long and pray that we would see and understand the relationship between joy and truth and come to the same conclusion which John does. And I summarize as follows, if you remember nothing else from this evening, please remember this, that there is no greater joy than to walk in the truth. There's no greater joy for ourselves than to walk in the truth. There's no greater joy for others than to walk in the truth. And so if you want to begin by turning to Third John with me, unless you're already there from Jamie's reading this passage for us, I will reiterate verse four, which says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. My kids are aged 14, 11, nine, and four. Boy, boy, girl, boy. The older they get, and the older I get, the more enjoyment I get from their enjoyment of what is good and true and beautiful. The more their souls grow in the enjoyment of the Lord, the more soul, my soul soars in joy along with them. And in a similar fashion, we can experience this as grandparents or coaches. Some of you might be teachers, 
early childhood educators, or people who are just investing in the lives of others, when we see those whom we love, when we see those whom we invest in grow and develop in what we have labored and delighted to pass on, it is a joy to us. For the Apostle John, the pinnacle of this, as ought to be the case for all of us, is the joy that comes from hearing, from seeing, from learning that others are walking in the truth. Now, in order for John to say as much, this is a conclusion that he has obviously come to personally. We cannot delight in others' delight of something we ourselves have not first delighted in. So for John to say he has no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth presupposes that John delights in the truth himself. And based on all that has been taught here this summer, that should come as no surprise to us. John's gospel has been wonderfully mined by faithful brothers before me to show that the Father is truth, that the Son is truth, that the Spirit is truth, and therefore, unsurprisingly, that God's Word is truth. So to delight in the truth is to delight in the triune God himself. It's to delight in every word that comes from the Father and through the Son, and breathed out by the Spirit, who illuminates the written and living word to us so that we might have fellowship with God. Someone has written that John's idea of truth is personified in Christ God the Spirit, who communicates not only his message, but himself to human beings. That is the source of greatest, truest, and most lasting joy. Listen to the opening verses of John's first epistle. He says this, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. He proclaims and he writes for the joy of others as is found in the truth. So that is in 1 John, and I'm going to weave in John's three epistles, and you can follow along. I'll put some references up behind me in a moment. But on this theme of truth and joy, here's 2 John 4. It's almost a parallel of 3 John 4. I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And again, the same sentiment on our theme verse for this evening in 3 John 4. So John testifies to the truth, so that others may have fellowship with him, whose fellowship is with the Father and the Son, the result of which is the joy of those who receive the gospel, and by extension is the joy of John's himself. Because John knows there's no greater joy than to walk in the truth. That is, in fellowship with the triune one who is truth, and he knows there's no greater joy for others than doing the same. And that outcome amplifies John's joy in the Lord as he witnesses others delight in what should be delighted in most. And what a marvel that God, happiest of all, 
in grace and mercy has enfolded us into this joyous triune embrace through the gospel. Now, given this connection between joy and truth, in my summary statement for this evening, which is really just taking from 3 John 4, if there is no greater joy than to walk in the truth, then we best understand what walking in the truth entails. What does this mean? If we should share in this joy, a joy we were created for, we have to learn to walk in the truth. Now, to develop this in John's understanding, as he's inspired by the Spirit, I actually do want to survey all three of John's letters to understand what he means by that phrase. And what I trust we will discover is that there are three realms that when taken collectively encompass all of life. And so we're gonna look at three different realms of what it means to walk in the truth and we'll weave application in as we move through. But first, there's some comment needed on the term walking, which is used by John both in his gospel and in his letters. So I want you to consider with me some references to walking in the scriptures. So in John 8, 12, from the lips of our Lord Jesus, who said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 12, 35 says, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. And then if we move over into the epistles, I'm just going to keep reading and you can follow or jot down the references for your own uh, uh, checking later. He says in 1 John 1, 6, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie, we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Again, 1 John 2, 6, whoever says he abides in him, that's Christ, ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. 2 John 6, and this is love that we walk according to his commandments. And when John writes to Gaius and rejoices that he walks in the truth, in hearing these other occurrences, it supports one commentator's conclusion that to walk in the truth means, I quote, to order life in accordance with the truth. Another puts it this way. To walk in the truth is to conduct one's life in the truth. It is to flesh out and conduct one's confession. And I would add, as we'll see, in community. And so remember, as has been stated again tonight and in previous weeks, truth is not merely a concept or an idea. The Father is truth. The Son is truth. The Spirit is truth. So to walk in truth is to walk in fellowship with the triune God in glad obedience to the truth of his word, which is where the greatest source of joy is found. As John Stott writes, whoever walks in the truth is an integrated believer in whom there is no dichotomy between profession and practice. On the contrary, there is in him an exact correspondence between creed and conduct. And that should make sense to us because there's no dichotomy between the God who is truth, the truth that God does, and the truth that God says. Now, just to really drive this home, to broaden out from John for a few moments, this understanding of walking as encompassing all of life is found in the Apostle Paul's writings also. In his epistles, there are, uh, there are more examples than uh, time affords for us to, to go through, but listen to just a few. 
He says, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. Romans 13, 13. He says, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Galatians 5, 16. I, therefore, he says, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Ephesians 4, 1. Colossians 1.10 says, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And then the last reference I have up there is 1 Thessalonians 2.12. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus, that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. And there are 20 more occurrences of this type of language in Paul's letters. As another summarizes, again, consistent with what we're seeing so far, walking was used to describe the whole of a person's existence and behavior. And if we broaden out, just for one example, beyond the New Testament, there's no surprise to find John and Paul writing this way because they were both raised on the Hebrew Scriptures. If you go all the way back to Genesis, we hear the following in Genesis 17.1. This is before Abraham, Abraham gets the name Abraham. It says, when Abram was 99 years old, Yahweh appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, El Shaddai, walk before me and be blameless. Walking before God in covenant relationship with God is not novel to the New Testament, of course. God has always been forming a covenant people to walk before him and with him as living, breathing, image-bearing billboards. In Christ, who is the image of the invisible God, we are being recreated as a new humanity to, dis to display the power of the gospel to the glory of God as we walk in reconciled relationship with him, with each other, and with God's creation. We do this imperfectly, but increasingly until the consummation in the new heavens and in the new earth. And if this is what walking in the truth entails, there's no wonder for, that for John there's no greater joy than to hear of his children in the faith doing so. Now, as mentioned, in the context of John's epistles, everyone else got a gospel text assigned to them. I get all of the epistles all to myself, which made me a very happy person. But uh, in the context of John's gospel uh, epistles, walking in truth, there's three particular realms that collectively encompass all of life. And for as long as I can remember, these are three hooks that have been in my mind upon which to hang the content of John's letters. They're not original to me. I can't remember where I first encountered them. Maybe someone in the room knows. They might be familiar to you. If they're new, I trust that you will find them helpful. But for John, to walk in the truth, the first implication of this entails theological fidelity or faithfulness. There's no greater joy for us and for others than to walk in true doctrine. We cannot walk in fellowship with and before God who is truth without confessing the truth. So walking in the truth entails theological fidelity. And I'm going to give you some examples as you can see the references uh, before you. So he's, he writes, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar 
and his word is not in us. So this would be a denial of truth fundamental to the proclamation of the gospel. If we are not sinners, then what need is there for a savior? If we are not sinners, we are saying God is a liar because he says that we are. So the truth about the nature of God and the nature of humanity cannot be denied if we are to walk in truth. Here's another instance of this in John's epistles. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. So to walk in truth is to confess that Jesus is the Christ. Anything else constitutes a lie. Now given that people propagate lies about the nature of God, the nature of humanity, and the nature of Christ, to walk in truth faithfully requires discernment. And there always has been a need for theological discernment, and that is no less true today. So listen to what John writes in 1 John 4, the first four verses. He says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Test the spirits. In 2 John 7-11, through you're just going to hear a lot of scripture this evening. He says, for many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves, so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you, and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever takes, greets him takes part in his wicked works. So to walk in the truth entails theological fidelity, faithfulness, which requires discernment. Test the spirits. Watch yourselves. Do not receive. There is a battle. You've heard this all through the summer if you've been here. There is a battle for truth. And if we are to know no greater joy than walking in the truth, we must be training our powers of discernment by constant practice to discern between good and evil, true and false. We have an enemy. There was a whole lecture dedicated to the one who, in whom there is no truth. He's prowling around like a roaring lion, lion who distorts and twists, who's subtle and clever, who spikes whole lies with partial truths to mask their deadly aroma. In addition to training our discernment regarding truth and lies, we must also employ discernment with regards to individuals who are the means by which truth and lies are spread. 
John writes in 1 John 2, 26, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. There are people actively seeking to do this. And if we would walk in truth, we must be discerning. In 3 John, some of which we've read, there are three characters. There's Gaius, to whom John writes, who is walking in the truth, he says. There's Diotrephes, who's talking wicked nonsense against those who are proclaiming the truth. And then there's Demetrius, who has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. These were real people. Maybe they had wives. Maybe they had kids with likes, dislikes, hopes, dreams. But they weren't all walking in the truth. And John actually had to go on record about them for the sake of the truth, for the sake of the joy of those he longed to see walking in the truth. So if we don't have our theological wits about us, we are vulnerable to deception, or even worse, we may in turn deceive others. The opposite to John's no greater joy than to hear of his children walking in the truth is the anguish of others not walking in the truth. So brothers and sisters, as far as it depends on us by God's grace, a lack of theological discernment on our watch which results in deception spread in our spheres of influence, this should be unthinkable to us. So let us strive for environments such that those under our watch could develop theological fidelity and so know the joy of walking in the truth. Whether you're a husband or a father, a wife or a mother, a grandparent, brother, pastor or elder, professor, teacher, church member, we all bear a measure of responsibility to guard the good deposit that was entrusted to us for the sake of our own joy in walking in the truth and for the sake of witnessing others' joy as we walk in true doctrine together. So this is the first realm for John. To walk in truth entails theological fidelity. But if we stop here, not only would we be missing much of what John writes, we could create an impression that doctrinal precision, accuracy is all that matters. But we've probably all encountered people that can articulate the truths of the faith with precision and passion, but who don't actually resemble our Lord Jesus. Talk is cheap, we say, and I think John would agree. So to walk in the truth involves not just the content of our confession, but the nature of our conduct. So a second implication of walking in the truth for John entails moral purity. There's no greater joy for us and others than walking in true purity, true holiness, light, not darkness. Again, some examples. John says, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is what? A liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So if our lives are not increasingly conforming, albeit incremental measure, 
If our lives are not increasingly conforming to the one we claim to have union with, namely Christ, that discrepancy exposes a lie. Now, this doesn't mean that we are to somehow attain a state of spiritual perfection, which is sometimes how people read John's epistles. And granted, they are difficult verses to, uh, to uh, sort through in light of other things that John says. But a few verses earlier, he writes, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the world. There's good news for sinners. There's good news for us when we fall into sin, that we go to the Father in the name of Christ, who is interceding at the Father's right hand and whose blood covers our sin, and we are cleansed, and this is rich, and we rejoice and rest in this by all means. But later John also writes this. 1 John 3, verses 4, following. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Okay, so how do we put this together? John's writing so that we won't sin, but if we do, we have an advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who's, who covered, who, who turned God's wrath from us, and instead we have God's favor turns, turned towards us. Uh, and then he writes that anyone who keeps on sinning, well, does anyone in the room continue to sin? Taking all of this together, what I understand John to mean is that the Christian life is a pattern of repentance and faith. When we do sin, if the truth is truly in us, and if we are truly in the truth, in relationship with the triune God, we will be convicted. The Spirit will do that work within us. When we are convicted of our sin, we'll confess our sin to God. We'll turn again to the Father through Christ, who is the advocate John writes about. And then, with the Spirit's help, we will seek to put indwelling sin to death, because we grieve in a godly way over the sin that we commit. Now, such a one is not someone who practices lawlessness. Someone who practices lawlessness, someone who keeps on sinning, is someone who does not demonstrate that pattern of repentance and faith. I once sat across from a woman who was a member of our church who informed me that she was moving in with a man who also professed to be a Christian and they had absolutely zero intention to marry. Through a series of steps involving church members, seeking to persuade her elders, the congregation, prayer, she didn't change course. Even through the process of church discipline, the aim of which I believe to be restoration, she still did not bear any fruit in keeping with repentance. She knew what she was, do, what she was, what she was doing was wrong, for she told me. She knew what the church's response would be, because she told me she did, and she pressed on anyway. And while I still hope and pray for her to come to her senses yet, the pattern of repentance and faith is broken. She's sinning, she knows it, she doesn't care. 
And as a church, we concluded that we could no longer affirm her profession of faith in the Lord Jesus in the truth. Listen to what John says, 1 John 3, 7 and 8. He says, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. We may all fall into sin, as D. Smith writes, but we will not walk in it. The Holy Spirit does not make us comfortable to lie down in sin and stay there. Rather, he helps us to get back up and walk in righteousness. So I recently sat across from another woman in our church who was going through the process of becoming a member. She's 80, she lives alone, and she's not well received by her family, most of whom are not Christians. When I went to interview her on behalf of our elders and our congregation, at one point in the wonderful conversation, she sighed deeply and she told me how sick she was of her sin and how her sin seems worse to her the longer she lives. Yet at the same time, she spoke of how much more she marveled at God's demonstration of love towards her and the giving of his son to save her whom she deeply longs to see. I hear that. And my mind goes to 1 John 3, verses 1 and 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. That we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. That's the trajectory of those who are walking in the truth, a course of true and lasting joy, the end of which is entering into the joy of our master. A course that John walked and rejoiced to see others walk. And I ask, is this the pattern that is on display in your own life? Is this what people would see if they were to peel back the privacy that we so often build around ourselves and the ways that we sequester ourselves from our brothers and sisters and from the elders God has given to us to watch over us and who will give an account of their watching over us to the Lord himself? To walk in the truth entails theological fidelity. To walk in the truth entails moral purity. But as we walk in the truth, we don't walk alone. To walk in the truth for John also entails loving community. There's no greater joy for us and others than to walk in the true love of relationship with those who are also in the truth. There's no greater joy for us and others than to walk in true loving community. As uh, Pastor Jamie mentioned, I grew up in Scotland, and one of my boyhood experiences was uh, going, uh, my stepdad one year bought a season ticket 
to go to one of the major uh, football clubs in Glasgow, soccer clubs in Glasgow. And one of the traditions of that club is right before the game would kick off, all of the fans would take their scarves, like, you know, striped, green and white striped or others, and they would hold their scarves above their head and they would all sing the same song at the top of their lungs. And these are the words of the song. When you walk through the storm, hold your head up high and don't be afraid of the dark. At the end of the storm is a golden sky and the sweet silver song of the lark. Walk on through the wind, walk on through the rain. Though your dreams be tossed and blown, walk on, walk on with hope in your heart and you will never walk alone, you will never walk alone. It was always a, a poignant, powerful moment and it's really quite something to hear 60,000 fans join their voices together in unity, mostly men. And in that setting, there are no strangers. The team scores, you hug people you don't even know. You groan together, you cheer together, you commiserate together. One year, the team released a jersey that said on the inside of the collar, it's not a football club, it's a way of life. Now, in many ways, that's a sad commentary on what the human heart will look to to fulfill that longing, which can only be found in the truth. Because there are we, myself included, and every week this goes on, the season started again. This is about 11 guys kicking a ball around a grass field, trying to get it between two posts and a crossbar. That's it. And yet, they're united in this. And it, 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 it pales in comparison. We have Christ in common. We confess the truth. We are in the truth by virtue of our union with Christ who is the truth. The same spirit of truth indwells each of us if we are Christians. We call God who is truth Father as his children together. And to hear the following in John's spirit-inspired writings ought to be expected then. Listen to 3 John following this evening's themes, ver, theme verse. He says in verse 5 of 3 John, Beloved, uh, he, he, what a great term. It is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testify to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they've gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these that we may, we may be fellow workers for the truth. John commends Gaius' love expressed in the support of gospel workers, which made him a co-laborer in the spread of the truth, truth which is for the greatest joy of anyone who would embrace Christ. And what we're seeing here is that we do not walk alone, we walk together in love. This theme permeates John's other epistles as well. Here, 1 John 2, verses 9 through 11. He says, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there's no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. And then, 1 John 3 and following two more passages to read on this theme. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. 
We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one. This is the seed of the serpent, the seed of the woman, the theme that runs throughout the scriptures. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. And this is where it becomes very uh, invasive. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And then this wondrous text in 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is, you finish it for me, love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. And the, the applications here are virtually endless. And they strike these necessary blows against our rugged individualism, our materialism, our tribalism, our judgmentalism, sinful attitudes and dispositions such as bitterness and unforgiveness and selfishness and reaching to think the worst of a brother or sister rather than reaching to think the best of a brother or sister. Gossip, slander, these and more are brought out into the light as we hear these texts on what it means to walk in truth, which means to walk in love. This bringing out into the light is what happens in Third John with Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first the absolute antithesis of what Christ did for us. And it wasn't only that he was talking wicked nonsense about others, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those he wants to and puts them out of the church. This is not walking in truth because it is not walking in love. To walk in the truth means to walk in truth for God who is truth is love the greatest manifestation of which was the death of the one who is truth and life, thus opening the way to the Father, so that his love might be poured into our hearts by the Spirit of truth and love given to us. So, brothers and sisters, walking in truth is inextricably linked with walking in love, which is visibly and tangibly expressed among God's people in the church. Any life that demonstrates otherwise is fraudulent. 
because it does not accord with the triune God. And I trust that you can at least begin to see how each of these realms overlap with one another. We cannot say we walk in the truth without theological fidelity. If we only have that, we cannot say that we walk in the truth without moral purity. And even if we had both of those, we cannot say that we walk in the truth without expressing so in loving community with those who also walk in the truth. So what we believe about God, the things that we think and do and say, and in our relationships with God's people, this encompasses all of life. That's what it means for John to walk in truth. Unless this sound burdensome, which John goes on record to say is absolutely not the case, remember how we began. There is no greater joy for us or for others than to walk in the truth. The psalmist says, in your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. God is truth. God is pure and holy. God is love. To walk in and with him, to walk in his ways, is without compare. And I believe that we will need to cling to the prospect, the experience, and ultimately the promised fulfillment of joy, of this joy in our day. For to walk in the truth is to face opposition. We walk against the world. We walk against the flesh. We walk against the devil. Uh, if you want to see a, a very heartbreaking and poignant way that that is unfolding, just even right in our province, I have a pastor friend, and I can give you the email afterwards, who has begun anonymously writing about the harrowing experience of his daughter becoming confused with gender ideology and declaring that she's a boy. And then what happens when they talk to doctors and psychiatrists and teachers and school counselors and all sorts. But if we delight, I'm not saying in making light of anything that that family is going through, but what we will need to keep walking against the grain is this joy that is found in walking in the truth. Despite what comes against us, if we can face all that while treasuring the joy of walking in and with God who is the truth, if we delight in what he delights in, the joy of the Lord will be our strength. Despite all that might be offered to us, John writes about the desires of the eyes, the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Despite all that might be arrayed against us, ours is a greater joy, and it cannot be taken away from us. In the truth in which we walk, namely Christ, we are assured that we will overcome. And time does not grant us looking forward to John's final spirit-inspired canonical contribution of revelation. But he says this in 1 John 5, 5. He says, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. Who is it 
that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And by doing so, by God's grace, others will see the power of God on display in our commitment to the truth. They will see the power of God's forgiving and transforming grace on display as we pursue holiness. And they will see the power of God's love overflowing amongst his people. And then, like John and with heaven, by God's grace, we will see people come from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light through our prayerful efforts in our churches such that we would come to say, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth.